I've just always been fascinated with what happens when you have characters in their landscape and, and how they react to it and how the landscape impacts them. And certainly the culture I write about, the Appalachian Mountain culture, I, I am convinced of uh, the psychological impact. I hope when a reader reads my books that the landscape feels like a character. That's author Ron Rash, and I'm Josephine Reed. You're listening to Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Ron Rash is one of those rare writers who moves effortlessly from poetry to short stories to novels. In fact, he's gotten literature fellowships from the NEA for both poetry and prose. On the poetry front, he's written Eureka Mills and Waking. His short story collection includes Burning Bright and Something Rich and Strange, while his longer fiction includes Serena and The Cove. But whatever the genre, Ron's focus is the geography and culture of the Southern Appalachian Mountains. And he brings to both an intense immediacy with some of the most beautiful writing around. And as anyone knows who's read, say, Serena, Ron Rash also knows how to construct tight plots and create vivid characters. We see all his skills at work in his latest novel, The Risen, a mystery where the choices made by two brothers while young have unexpected and unsettling repercussions in the present. It's hard to give a plot synopsis of a mystery because you don't want to give anything away. So I think I'll just let Ron Rash tell it. Novel's about two brothers who grew up in the North Carolina mountains. In 1969, one of the brothers fell in love with a young woman who had come from Florida. She was kind of the first sense of an alternative lifestyle that they'd ever seen. But now, 46 years later, her body has been found in that same area, and one brother realizes that the other brother covered up the murder, and he's in a situation where he has to decide... Should I go to the police? Should I confront him or keep my mouth shut because it's been so long? And the novel works in in that way, in the sense of the decision whether to confront the older brother or not. And the two brothers are Bill, who's the older brother, and Eugene, who is the brother who is conflicted about what to do. Exactly. And the girl's name is, pronounce it Lygea? Ligeia, Ligeia, it could be either one, but that name was very significant because it means Queen of the Mermaids. And in the novel, she's associated with water and, and a kind of something magical about her. So I felt like that was the apt name. And also it evokes Edgar Allan Poe's short story, Ligeia. There are real differences between the brothers, between Bill and Eugene. Can we talk about their characters and who they are? Eugene is the the younger of the two brothers, and in the decades that have passed in the novel between the the murder and the present day, has pretty much wrecked his life. He's an alcoholic. He's lost his marriage, uh, his job, and pretty much so much of his life has gone wrong, while his older brother, Bill, has become very successful as a neurosurgeon now, very prominent in the area. So a kind of rivalry that developed early on continues to be played out, I think. And also just the idea of, I I thought that idea of the two brothers, there's always a kind of archetypal tension between siblings, and I thought that would be interesting to play off that. And also the idea that who, who's right in this situation? Who do we admire? And, and I hope the reader 
feels as ambivalent about that as I do. I, I deliberately in this novel wanted to create two characters that, that the reader has conflicting views. Is, is one more admirable or less admirable than the other? Yeah. And as a reader, one keeps going back and forth. I mean, the more you get into the book, you're thinking one thing, and then you're really quite not so sure anymore as more gets revealed. There's also the character of the grandfather who sort of hovers like a dark angel over the book. Tell us about him. I think he, in some ways, maybe as frightening characters I've ever written, partly because he has this control over the two boys. Their fathers died and also their mother, who's married into the family. And he's a man who feels omnipotent and very cruel, manipulative, and his ability to impact these two boys' lives is very significant. And I think that, once again, makes the boys and their reactions to the world and to life more complex, because how much of it is this man's cruelty as opposed to some personal responsibility? He certainly is controlling about those boys, but he's also controlling about the people in the small community in which they live, because he's the town doctor, and as it's implied in the book, he knows everybody's secrets, and he's perfectly willing to use them to get what he wants. Right. He's ruthless. And I grew up in a small town, and fortunately, my doctor wasn't like that. But I, I remember thinking one day, as I, was, I saw him on the street, that he sees everyone in this community in a way probably different than I would. He remembers what's happened in their lives, what's been covered up, what's been hidden. And uh, I thought, you know, if a man were manipulative or mean enough, whatever word you want to use, he, uh, what power that would be in a small town because uh, no one would ever feel completely safe from something he might say or reveal. Indeed, you created a character who did just that. It's interesting about the archetypes that you talked about in The Risen between the brothers Bill and Eugene because there are kind of those archetypes that have appeared in other of your books. And I'm thinking of, for example, Above the Waterfall, we have the two narrators, Becky and Les. Becky, who is, I guess, a forest ranger, and Les, who's the sheriff. And then probably most dramatically in Serena, where you have Serena and and Rachel. Can you talk about how you play with those throughout your books and, and what the appeal is? For me, the appeal as a writer, and I hope for the reader, is the sense of you're setting up certainly a conflict because those characters tend to be very different. And to me, so much of the tension in a novel comes from uh, those situations that I set up between those two people. And and very often, sometimes I kind of balance between darkness and light, though I hope the characters are always more complex than that. They're not that simple, but I think their tendencies tend to conflict. And uh, I find that to be uh, a very rich way uh, to, to enter a story and to tell a story. Well, another way you certainly enter and tell stories is through the landscape and the effect of the North Carolina mountains, most specifically, has on the people themselves. And you've said that you think landscape is destiny. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I agree, and I find it fascinating. I've just always been fascinated with what happens when you have characters in their landscape and, and how they react to it and how the landscape impacts them. And certainly 
the culture I write about, the Appalachian Mountain culture, those mountains I found can be both given great solace in the sense that it's almost as if they're womb-like the valleys of the people inside, the inhabitants are being protected. Yet at the same time, those those mountains can loom over the characters. Uh, there's a timelessness to those mountains that can make the characters feel trapped, insignificant, and so I, I am convinced of uh, the psychological impact. And it's one thing that's been interesting about my books as they've been translated into other languages is how many people from other mountain cultures, whether it's the Andes or the Pyrenees, have written me or when I've been on book tour internationally and, and said, you get that sense of those mountains, it, you know, the same feelings I have. And I thought that was very interesting as far as how landscape would impact people, not just in Appalachia, but any culture that's mountainous. Yeah, I was going to, in fact, ask you that about what you write about is about Appalachia very particularly, but how much it it really is about mountain culture. And that mountain culture happens to be set in Appalachia. Yeah, and my kinship to other authors includes writers such as John Juno uh, from from France and Mo Yan from China. And uh, one reason I love those writers, among many reasons, but is the way landscape and character become inextricable. They're just tied together so closely. And uh, to me, that adds another level of depth to a novel. I hope when a reader reads my books that landscape feels like a character. Oh, yeah. And a couple of novels, I've really wanted the landscape to be the dominant character, certainly in Saints at the River and also in The Cove. So to me, that just adds just a deeper sense of, of the place, but also of the people. Your books often also look at who stays and who goes, and who, who goes and who comes back. Yeah, I, and I think that's always one of the questions about growing up in a rural area, as I did. You know, there's the pull of home, but at the same time, there's a sense that a person may be stifled. And I, I found that conflict that I think either way you end up wondering if the right decision was made to leave or to stay. And it's something that uh, I think many people feel, but particularly uh, people who grow up in a small town or a rural area. I know from personal experience, uh, a number of my friends stayed. Others felt like they had to leave, and, and I was actually one of them. But I think that conflict is very rich for literature. A lot of your books also deal with dialects, turns of phrase, a kind of a specificity in the narrative voice and and in the dialogue. And I would imagine, as somebody who wants to portray the wholeness of that area, it has to be, I'm trying to think of how to say this, it's like a tricky line to walk so that it doesn't become a stereotype, but that it rather is authentic. And I'm just wondering how you grapple with that. Oh, yeah. And I think I've actually got a theory about this. It's almost as if you're giving a translation instead of a rendering of the way these people speak. And by that, what I mean is if I attempted to mimic exactly the way someone in the mountains would have spoken in the 1950s, you're absolutely right. It would have come off cartoonish, almost something out of the Beverly Hillbillies. And so what I found I have to do is uh, it's almost like seasoning with cooking. I sprinkle in some enough to give a sense of the language, but to the point where it doesn't start to draw the reader away from the book. I think that's the danger, that it starts to pull the reader away. The reader notices it too much. But at the same time, you want to be true to the way these people speak. And one way I, I tend to do this 
you know, what makes that language unique is through the use of simile. And simile has two purposes. One, it is a way of showing a distinctive culture. I mean, if, if a character uses a, a metaphor about farming or simile about farming, then that, in a sense, reveals something about that character's place in the world. But the other thing is, it does the very thing we're, that we're, you're bringing up. To create a good simile, a person has to have intelligence because the person's taking two unlike things and making a connection. So to me, it's a way of also showing people that might be uneducated in the sense of, you know, how much time they've been in schools, yet at the same time have an intelligence. So I can remember one time my uncle, who was a tobacco farmer, once said a young woman didn't have enough clothes on to wad a shotgun. (laughs) And that's a very sophisticated use of simile. Well, I had to wait three novels to get it in, but I I finally did. (laughs) Now, tell me about your growing up. You grew up in North Carolina in the countryside. Yeah, small town in western North Carolina. And I spent so much of my childhood and early adolescence uh, on my grandmother's farm in the mountains. And there was no vehicle there, no television. And, you know, just she and I were there. And it was just this wonderful childhood and, as I say, early adolescence where essentially she would just let me run. Uh, the land uh, bordered the Blue Ridge Parkway, so sometimes I'd be gone five or six hours, not really going. Sometimes I might take a fishing rod with me, but it was just that chance to be out there, not only kind of learning about the natural world, but also imagining, making up stories. And it's not a childhood I, I think is even possible now. It would be very difficult, but um, I think it had a lot to do with my becoming a writer and also my interest in, in nature and the older ways of storytelling. Yeah, I was just thinking about that, about just giving kids that freedom just to be able to discover what's around them, but also the way that has to ignite their imagination. Yeah. Because if they're alone, they're telling themselves stories, or if they're more than one of you, it's let's play pretend. Right. And I think it was just great training to be a writer because so much of writing is about solitude. And were you on your own? Did you have any siblings with you when you went? No, and that, uh, looking back on it, that I was uh, talking to my brother and sister about this. They never once went with me on these trips. Uh, they liked to stay home and go to the swimming pool. They, they were much more extroverted than I was, I guess. I want to talk about fishing because clearly trout means a lot to you, well, I think. Oh, yeah. Does it? Or how does fishing factor into your life and trout most specifically? Well, uh, it all goes back to my grandmother's farm. I, one of my very, very earliest memories was my grandfather taking me across the road into the pasture, and uh, there was a small stream there, and I saw him catch a trout. I caught my first one, I think, when I was six. But there's something else about those, particularly the trout that I was catching there called brook trout and speckled trout. They're the only native trout in the Appalachians, but they become very rare. Uh, only a few very isolated streams hold them now. And to me, there's a kind of resonance in the fact that you have these fragile creatures that are been backed up into the furthest reaches of the mountains. And they tend to represent a lot to me, but I've just always been fascinated with water and uh, the beauty of those fish. And uh, it just evokes so much for me. I guess uh, Proust had his biscuits. I've got my speckled trout. (laughs) When did you begin writing? I started later than many of my writer friends. I didn't really start writing until I was a freshman in college. I think I was preparing to write. I was always a voracious reader. 
And as I've said, you know, I, I was very used to solitude, uh, my, using my imagination. But when I was 15, I read Crime and Punishment. And obviously at 15, I, did, I missed a lot of the depth of that book. But I can remember when I read the scene where the pawnbroker is murdered. For the first time in my life, it wasn't so much I'd enter book, entered a book, but the book had entered me. And I remember just being so amazed that just splotches of ink on a page could affect me that much. Uh, so I think there I started to realize that I want to do this too. I want to see if I can do this. And Dostoevsky has continued to be probably the most important novelist to me. And I think particularly in this book, uh, The Risen, because the questions I think Dostoevsky raised are, can one redeem oneself after uh, doing something or participating in something terrible? Uh, those kinds of questions have always fascinated me, uh, troubled me in the sense of how, how does someone live after doing a terrible thing? And at least some of those questions are being asked in this book. You're a poet, a novelist, and a short story writer. So where did you begin? I began with some short stories, but pretty quickly after that, uh, I was trying poems. I wrote some short stories in my late 20s that I felt pretty good about, eventually got published. But as I got into my 30s, I pretty much spent about five or six years almost completely writing poetry before I went back to short fiction and ultimately to novels. And I think in, in many ways it was the best thing I could have done for my prose, for my short stories and novels, because it has made me so attentive to language and to the point when I'm doing my last revisions on a novel or short story, it's purely about sound. It's about what syllables distress, uh, the play of vowels off consonants, and that may sound a little bit tedious, but to me that's my favorite part of writing, and, and it's ultimately where the magic comes from in writing because it's those things, it's that kind of attentiveness, I think, that draws the reader in and, and helps to create the dream that is a novel. I mean, there are certain rhythms, prose rhythms, that kind of induce a somewhat altered state. I think when I read Cormac McCarthy, for instance, or Faulkner, there, there's a kind of rhythm in those books, I think, that draws the reader in deeper. And I hope I achieve some of that in my own work as well. To be practical, because I, I'm always interested in how you were supporting yourself as you were starting out. I taught. I taught high school. Uh, then I taught at community college 17 years. And Unfortunately, I had to um, make a living, <laughs> or not so. I mean, I enjoyed teaching, and but that's always the dilemma. But what I found was to be able to write, particularly when I was teaching five classes a semester at, at the uh, community college, was, was I had to uh, do away with everything else in my life, pretty much except my family. I have, I have no social life. I you know, didn't go out to parties, and it was a choice. Uh, I got up early. I teach night classes at the college so that I could have my mornings free to write. I'd get up an hour early uh, one, once, one year. <laughs> semester when daylight savings time either came or went. I stayed on the old schedule because somehow psychologically it made me think I had another hour. I mean, just weird stuff like that. You know, I think it was just that I, I wanted it that bad. I, I'm not a well-rounded person. I've only wanted maybe to do one thing well, whether it started off being fishing when I was a kid, but uh, I, I pretty much focus my energy in one direction, which is why when my air conditioning goes out or I have a flat tire, I'm hopeless. You know, I'm of the belief that every artist needs one person, just one person, 
to believe in them absolutely, to keep on going. Not necessarily huge public acclaim. Everybody in the world can be against you, but just have that one person in your corner really can make all the difference in the world. And I'm wondering if you had that. Well, I have, I think, but it, it's really been all family members that, that did that. Oh, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't need to be a famous person. Right, but at first I didn't let anybody know. No one knew I was writing. I didn't let anybody, even my siblings know because I wasn't sure if I could do it. But uh, once, you know, I started kind of showing my work a little bit to members of my family, they were hugely supportive. And my sister did this amazing thing for me that uh, I can never repay her enough. And this is exactly what you're talking about. When I was teaching at that community college, my sister paid the, the college so that I could only had to teach three classes in the spring so I could write more. You know, she did that four straight years when I was teaching there. Wow. I mean, that's, to me, yeah, the ultimate act of faith. Yeah. It's funny, yep. you know, my brother and I are English majors. She's an engineer. But she believed in, in my work and believed that I could do this and, and also knew how badly I wanted to do it. And that two-course reduction made a huge difference, particularly because I was starting to write novels then. It, and it really allowed me to write my first book, first novel. What's the story behind the publication of your first book? That was interesting because, you know, I'd written a couple of novels that weren't any good, so I just threw them away. But finally, I wrote One Foot in Eden, my first novel, the first one I really felt worked. I uh, was able to get an agent, but uh, the book ultimately didn't sell. got some nice rejection letters. But there was a contest for North Carolina books, a uh, small press in North Carolina, and it won the contest and was published as a hardback, and I got very lucky. NPR happened to somehow find out about the book and gave it a good notice, and a couple of national newspapers did, which was pretty amazing because, as I say, it was such a small press and only had like a 3,000 print run. But that got attention in New York, uh, got me a new agent who was very helpful. And, And one of the ironies, once it had shown that it could be successful, you know, this book, uh, The Hardback of One Foot in Eden, two of the uh, publishers who had turned it down bid on the paperback rise. And that's how you, you moved to a major publisher. Exactly, yeah. This was when I was in my late 40s. So it took a while, and I never regretted the fact that what attention has come to my work has come later because I, it was a real gift not to have the distractions that can come once you, you achieve a certain level of recognition. I mean, nobody was really interested in what oh, yeah. I was doing outside my family. And so I was really able to really study my craft. Will you read a bit from the very beginning of The Risen? Sure. She is waiting. Each spring the hard rains come and the creek rises and quickens and more of the bank peels off, silting the water brown and bringing to light another layer of dark earth. Decades pass. She is patient, shelled inside the blue tarp. Each spring, the water laps closer, paling roots, loosening stones, scuffing and smoothing. She is waiting, and one day a bit of blue appears in the bank, and then more blue. The rain pauses, and the sun appears, but she is ready now, and the bank trembles a moment and heaves, and the strands of tarp unfurl, and she spills into the stream and is free. Bits of bone gather in an eddy form a brief necklace. The current moves on toward the sea. You've said your stories usually start with a single image, and I'm wondering what that image was for the Risen. 
It was an image of a wooded area and a mound of leaves, but I could tell from the way the mound was shaped that a body was beneath it. I thought it was something like that. (laughs) (laughs) You write, as we said, poetry, novels, short stories. Does your approach differ when writing in these forms, or is it pretty much the same? Do you start with an image for all your work, or how how do you approach them differently? Yeah, it, it almost always starts with an image, and, and, and I really don't know where that image will lead. I mean, sometimes it does lead to a poem, sometimes to a short story, uh, sometimes to a novel, though whenever it's a novel, I just groan because I know, you know, the next three years of my life, I'm going to be thinking about this thing, carrying around with me. You you have the image, and you decide it's going to be a short story or a poem or a novel. What's the next step? What's the routine? If it's a novel, for example, do you do you outline it all? Do you have a sense of where it's going to go or what, what the end point is going to be? No, I, I never know. And early in my writing, I, I would always know where the story was going. I, sometimes I would outline it. I'd know pretty much I, you know how it was going to go. And those stories never work. So what I've come to believe is that I just have to let those characters uh, move about uh, in my head, and they start to kind of develop and become more real. But very often I don't know where a story's going, and particularly with novels, there's always not just a moment, but sometimes months, and it almost always happens after a year, where it just seems like the story's stalled, and I'm unsure how it's going to work you know, very often, as I say, I just go in every morning trying to figure a way out. But you know, I'm convinced that it's that sense of not knowing that allows a kind of surprising moment. And, and I think Robert Frost said, no surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader. In a way, it's almost as if a character says, okay, hold it, you haven't heard my side of this, or I'm the one in control of this story. It's funny, you know, whether you believe in free will uh, for human beings, uh, you have to let your characters have it. You say you write every day? I try to, yes, and usually do. Uh, sometimes on Sundays I, I won't. Uh, I'll, I'll be thinking about it, though, but I've learned to write on the road. I can write in motel rooms now, hotel rooms. To me, it's a matter of just sitting down and saying, okay, I'm going to sit here for several hours. If, if I don't write a word, I'm still going to sit here several hours. What's the hardest part about writing for you at this point in your career? Oh, wow. Well, I think not repeating myself is something that's very important. But always, for me, the hard part is that first draft. Once I can get a draft Mm. down, I'm fine. But it's the first draft that I dread. And I've learned the only way I can do it is just to write as rapidly as I can. And the story may will alter drastically, of course. You've written so much. And this uh, this is a hard question. If you had to choose a book to give to somebody as representative of your work or something that you're particularly proud of, what would it be? Oh, wow, that is a tough one. Uh, I know. Well, I'm going to have to give you two answers. I would give uh, something rich and strange is uh, my selected short stories that came out about two years ago. and, And I think that book would be the one that I would give for the short stories. But if I had to pick a novel, uh, I, I would do Serene. I think that's my most ambitious book and the one that I'm personally most proud of. I, I've never gone as deep as I did 
in that book. I mean, in a way, it was almost scary. I felt like I was becoming a little bit unmoored because I was so obsessed with it. But uh, it's a book that I felt very good about, continue to feel good about, and uh, I suspect it'll be the best novel I ever write. It's a wonderful book. Ron, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Joe. That's author Ron Rash. We were talking about his recent novel, The Risen. You can meet Ron at the National Book Festival on September 24th. He's reading in the NEA's Poetry and Prose Pavilion at 1 p.m. Go to loc.gov backslash bookfest for details. You've been listening to Artworks. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.